Is the world that we live in more like heaven or is it more like hell? Take a moment to think about the hardships of your personal life. Take a moment to think about the headlines in the newspaper and on your social media feeds. School shootings, political rivalries, pandemics, economic instability, and for us in Minnesota, what feels like an unending winter. If you had to base your answer to that question on your personal hardships in newspaper headlines, what would it be? I think that many of us would likely describe the world that we live in as more hellish than heavenly. For many of us, the somber moments of a Good Friday service, reflection on the sadness of the death of Jesus simply just adds more weight to that sadness that already permeates our world in very public but very personal ways. But I want to suggest that the sadness of Christ's death actually makes sense of the world and of all of the hardships that we face. So while thinking about Jesus' death might make us feel the weight of the world even more, I want to propose that it's actually the only solution to the problems we see. In the gospel accounts, there are hints of hope, even in the darkest moments of Jesus' story. Luke, in particular, highlights the promise of paradise that's secured through Jesus' crucifixion. And that's even before his resurrection, which makes it fitting for us to reflect on tonight before we celebrate the resurrection on Sunday. So this evening, we'll observe the promise of paradise in the Bible story and we'll explore how we can personally receive that promise in the way that we respond to Jesus. The Christian Bible begins in Genesis with a depiction of God's creation of the world. At the start, there was nothing, only emptiness, a great void, a chaos. And out of this chaotic void, God spoke all things into existence, including a perfect paradise, the Garden of Eden. Paradise, this word so familiar to us, is actually the Greek word for garden. But for us, it evokes images of perfection and beauty. Because God gave this paradise garden to Adam and Eve, the first humans, so that they could enjoy a deeply meaningful life in his presence. In that garden home, they would expand its borders until it covered the entire earth, so that they could share this perfect home with all of humanity. But in this garden home, they were given an important instruction not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was placed in the center of the garden. And if you're like me, you've probably wondered why God would give them such an arbitrary and manipulative test. But there was nothing arbitrary and manipulative about it. This tree was representative of God's divine throne. So the command not to eat is indicative of a command for them not to try to steal God's authority, but to live under it. So in this way, paradise is depicted as the garden kingdom of God. And these first kingdom citizens would enjoy all good things and great flourishing 
as long as they lived under God's reign. In short, their life in God's garden kingdom was heavenly, unlike our present experience in the world. Yet, this perfect garden kingdom was infiltrated by a serpent, an agent of the void who wanted to dethrone God and invade his garden kingdom and replace it with pre-creation emptiness and chaos. The serpent tempted the human couple to rebel against God, to claim his throne as their own by eating from the tree. And they did it. They committed treason against God. They thought the reward would be fulfilling, but instead they were empty and broken. They immediately regretted it. In response, God cursed the serpent. He exiled Adam and Eve from the garden, sending them far away. They lost their place in paradise. Exiled to the emptiness outside the garden's borders, they experienced the harsh chaos of life apart from God. It was like their sin seeped into the soil, depleting its fertility. It's like their sin seeped into their own souls, debilitating their life and flourishing. In fact, every emptiness that you fill in your life, every void deep in your heart, every chaos that threatens to undo an ordered and well-lived life is a byproduct and participation in this original exile and sin-marked existence. The rest of the Old Testament is essentially a compilation of different stories about humanity's attempt to regain paradise, to restore what was lost. Every major figure in the Old Testament is a new Adam. Noah, Abraham, Joseph, David, Solomon, and the list goes on. Every reference to the promised land or the kingdom of Israel or the Jerusalem tempo is just an echo of the sacred garden kingdom. But each Adam figure failed. And every place is transformed from a potential paradise into a devastating hellscape. Every attempted utopia ended in a dystopia. Exile and emptiness mark the human experience. And your experience and mine shows us that we're stuck in the same failed cycle. Whether it's a politician or a parent or a pastor, every attempt to regain paradise while simultaneously rebelling against God ultimately brings about devastation instead. But God, in his mercy and love, did not settle for this downward spiral away from paradise and into the primordial chaos. Instead, he acted in a new and surprising way by entering into that chaos himself. This time he didn't simply speak a word, but the word became flesh in the mystery of the incarnation, in the birth of Jesus. And in this entry, Jesus would bring about a new creation, paradise restored. In Luke's gospel, 
he shows us that Jesus carries forward the whole story of the Bible by connecting Jesus to Adam in a genealogy in Luke chapter 4. And immediately following that biological connection to the first Adam, showing Jesus as a second Adam, Luke takes us to a dramatic scene in Jesus' life. He takes us to a temptation in the wilderness. In sharp contrast to Adam's temptation in a perfect, luxurious garden, Jesus is tempted in a wasteland. But Jesus resisted his temptation. He would not continue the same downward, downward spiral of turning earth into hell in pursuit of gaining heaven. Instead, he showed himself to be a new and better Adam, one who would bring back God's garden kingdom and his glory to earth forever. When Jesus left that wilderness temptation, he did exactly that. He took paradise with him wherever he went, wherever he encountered sickness and hunger and sin and sadness and ignorance and hypocrisy. He set things right with words of love, acts of compassion, restoration of justice, care for the vulnerable, and with the creation of a community of followers that started with just 12 disciples and expanded to include a worldwide following that he called the church, Jesus began to bring paradise back to earth forever. But Jesus was tempted once again, this time in a garden. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus resolved to continue his paradise-recovering mission, even though it would require his death. And immediately after he finished his prayer of resolve and commitment to the mission, Judas entered the garden, and there he betrayed his Lord. The new Adam was delivered to his executioners in a garden, reenacting the betrayal of God in that first garden so many centuries ago. Throughout his life, Jesus' followers and his critics tried to convince him to escape suffering and death and to regain paradise in another way. His followers, who were friendly to his mission, wanted to see immediate results. More than that, they couldn't fathom that their Savior would die in their own lifetimes. His critics saw his suffering as proof that he was delusional, either a lunatic or a liar. These efforts to dissuade Jesus were his final temptation. They urged him to save himself, but if he did, he would fail his mission. His resolve never failed. One criminal, crucified next to him that we just read about, insulted him and called on him to prove that he was God's appointed king by saving himself from that horrendous death. The criminal reasoned if Jesus was really God's king, if he was really a better Adam, if he could really restore paradise where all others had failed, why wouldn't he save himself instead of dying on a cross? As offensive as this criminal's language might have been, Luke doesn't really present him as a villain. The question is normal. It's natural. 
It's the one that all of us have. Because in the world as it currently is, a dying king isn't a powerful one. A crucified Christ isn't a saving one. And a hellish execution doesn't secure heaven. So we ask with that criminal, why was Jesus so insistent on embracing death? Why did he refuse to save himself? Why was it necessary for Jesus to die in order to bring paradise back? These questions are deeper and more involved than they might appear. But there's at least one answer that we can chase down. Transforming the world as it currently is into the world as it should be, paradise, requires a counterintuitive move. Currently, the world is upside down. So for Jesus to set it right side up, he had to go all the way to the top by going all the way to the bottom. Jesus was intent on entering into the remotest areas of exile, the deepest experience of suffering, and the darkest darkness of death so that he could completely eradicate the chaos and the emptiness, the void. He wanted to bring back a paradise that would go all the way down, one that could bring restoration and healing to our deepest hurts, one that could bring order out of the most terrible chaos, and one that can shine light into the darkest night. One that wouldn't be temporary, but one that would last forever. One that would be big enough to offer a home for you and for me and all humanity where we can dwell with God. Shockingly, in Luke's account, there's one person in the story who gets it. He's hanging on a cross next to Jesus. Somehow this criminal understood the mission of God in Christ. For that reason, he rebuked this criminal on the other side who was taunting Jesus. And he turned his attention to Jesus. And as he was restrained on the cross, he reached out to Christ and asked Jesus to remember him when Jesus came into his kingdom. And using the final breaths in his life, Jesus promised this penitent criminal paradise. I've tried to tell the story of the whole Bible and really the story of our existence through the framework of paradise lost through the first Adam's sin and paradise regained through the second Adam's sacrificial death. But it would be a mistake to stop there by just telling the story. You see, biblical stories aren't intended to function primarily as a bare record of history, just letting us know what happened. They do more than that. They provide moral lessons and communicate theological truths, and they explain reality, but I want to suggest that they do something more. They invite each one of us to enter into the story, to imagine ourselves in the story, to envision ourselves as one of the criminals on the cross. So I want you to envision yourself in this story. I want you to imagine yourself as one of the criminals next to Jesus. If we had time, you should start 
by envisioning yourself as the criminal that taunts Jesus prior to seeing yourself as the one who responds to him with humility and repentance. As you imagine yourselves in these two circumstances, there are two basic responses that are available to us when we embody this story in our own lives. On the one hand, we can reject Jesus like the first criminal. We can ignore his claims to be the messianic king. We can view his crucifixion and death as essentially meaningless. We can even mock the idea of Jesus and his followers who put their hope in him. We can stay stuck in seeing the world as it is and refuse to accept Jesus' message about the world as it should be. On the other hand, we can receive Jesus like the second criminal. We can recognize our guilt before God. We can acknowledge that the sufferings and the hardships of this life and the judgment of God in the next are deserved because of our sinfulness. We can give up on our attempts to establish our own kingdoms and the delusions that we can create our own paradises out of money or sex or power or fitness or whatever. We can affirm the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that he did nothing wrong. And we can appeal to Jesus to remember us in his kingdom. That is, we can pledge ourselves to King Jesus as his kingdom citizens, asking him to receive us into his kingdom and to make paradise our home. In the darkest moments of human history and in the depths of deepest suffering, Jesus went about setting things right. He regained paradise for all who will come to him. And his crucifixion in that promise of paradise on the cross isn't the end of the story. In fact, a different biblical author, John, in the book of Revelation, describes the day when paradise will come back to earth with Jesus. Jesus will bring heaven to earth. He'll reestablish the garden kingdom. And the throne of God and of the Lamb and the tree of life will heal the land and eradicate the curse and sickness, and death, and hurt, and sorrow forever. And all who come to Jesus are welcomed in. So how will you respond to Jesus' death? What better time of year than now, on this Good Friday, as we consider the depth of Christ's sacrifice to acknowledge your sinfulness and your need for a crucified Savior? In these somber moments, will you determine to respond to Jesus like the second criminal? Often I end a sermon like this with a prayer for all of us, but I don't know what prayer you need to offer. So instead, we're going to end this time with a private reflection and time for prayer in response to the Christ who promises paradise. Silence can be awkward, I know, but lean into it and imagine yourself in the story and respond to Christ 
In a few moments, the music team will return and give us songs to sing that will allow us to speak words of sorrow and gratitude together. But until then, let's enter the story. Let's pursue the promise of paradise in Christ alone.